Thank you for listening to the Mind Meld Podcast with Dave Perry. This is the Mind Meld Podcast. I am Dave Perry. Today is a special episode, and it is a co-hosted, co-owned episode with friend of the show and separate podcast host, Rob Ebert. And I'm going to let, let Rob's up to bat now do your intro, and we're going to merge these bad boys together, and we will be releasing them on our respective streaming sites. We are really making history today. So I want to welcome my good friend and all-star drummer, Dave Perry, Mm. to the 90s Rock podcast, the only 90s Rock podcast that I'm aware of, really scratching the itch of of what the people are asking for today. But no, Dave, it's awesome to have you on and awesome to be teaming up with the Mind Meld podcast. As I mentioned, you are not only a drummer in your own right, but I would say one of the world's foremost authorities on the Foo Fighters, which is what we'll be covering today. Uh, I would, while I'm a little biased about my own fandom, I'm going to temper that enthusiasm back a little bit. I'm going to be fully honest that I have both the Foo Fighters and Taylor Hawkins, um, Wikipedia pages open in front of me and we'll be referencing them. And I think just because there's so much emotion around what's happening right now, like literally this incredible rock of rock and roll hall of fame inducted world-class drummer and best friend of Dave Grohl and guy who'd done eight albums with the Foo Fighters and many other bands, um, you know, recently, tragically, suddenly died. And it could mean the end of my personal favorite band. And and one of the, I I think arguably by many different metrics, the biggest rock band of all time. Um, So I want to get into that. And I think that there's a lot to discuss um, when you look at the history, like there's certainly things about, certainly Taylor's background and even the Foo Fighters background that I think would be kind of fun to like skim through the Wikipedia pages here and then talk about the intersection of the information and facts that are there and then how that kind of intersects with our lives, which, you know, you and I, when we first met, connected over a love of uh, all all thing 90s, but definitely a love of like the grunge. And then like, would you would you qualify Bush as grunge or is that more of like an alternative rock? Definitely alternative rock. I mean, I think the best way to put it is just, I don't know how else to describe it other than guitar rock. Mm. Like uh, just for the purpose of my show, I wanted to be a little bit more specific. Because you always get into these instances where like Foo Fighters, you know, first album comes out in 96, 97, but they're bigger now than they ever even were in the 90s. You get into all that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. It's just this kind of music. And I think it's interesting too. Like we've been circling this episode for a while. We wanted to do the Foo Fighters. We did. We recently and, have talked about getting together and kind of diving right because I just yeah. read, I just read Dave Grohl's book, and yeah. you just saw him when he was on his book tour. I went out like, to L.A. to the Ford Theater and got it was it was fucking incredible, dude. Like I, I get goosebumps thinking about it right now. So I went to the Ford Theater in L.A., which is this very it's intimate but outdoor, and it kind of a bowl setting. Um, there was maybe two hundred people there, including Taylor Hawkins. And it was um, based on Dave's book is called Storyteller, right? Right. And it was the first, uh, he did like a mini book tour, but it was the first event that he did where he basically, he didn't even read from the book. It was just like, he told the stories from his heart and from his memory that are covered in the book and kind of just went off on tangents and he played songs for us and he played Smells Like Teen Spirit on the drums 
um, to, you know, the tracks from Nirvana, which is the closest I'm ever going to get to see Nirvana, you know, perform right. live. And, and now I, I know you're not a religious man, but would you say that was as close to a religious experience as you've had? <laughs> no, because there have legit been times where I've almost died multiple times. And, and it's like, oh, that, wow, it's amazing. I'm still alive. And my life wasn't threatened in that scenario, but it was definitely one of the coolest fucking experiences okay, I've ever had. We'll go coolest. And I definitely had like, there, there were legit moments because I, I got these tickets and they were row AA. And in my mind, I even looked at the seating map and I guess I just, whatever, did it backwards. In my mind, it went like A through Z and then like AA, B, B, C, C, but it wasn't. I had, I got some fucking how got dead center front row tickets. And there's, he's telling these emotional moments and and there's even this like prolonged um, moment of silence for Kurt as he's reflecting upon that, you know, really critical period in his life and and contemplating whether or not he's even going to return to music and like, there were legit, there was moments where I like locked eyes with them. There was moments where it was like, I, I'm not putting him on a pedestal. I'm saying that just like, it was emotional. Like it legit felt like hanging out with him. I've, you know, we're all there to see and listen to him, but it, it was so intimate and so cool that I'm truly thankful for that experience. But he legit spent maybe 10 times over the course of that two hours, 10 minutes over the course of that two hours, referencing how big of a impact Taylor Hawkins is on his life and the Foo Fighters and the survival of that band. And, um, you know, it's undeniable that it's so interesting. The parallels between Kurt Cobain killing himself and the, the you know, uh, metaphorical and literal death of Nirvana and, and the crossroads that Dave Grohl found himself at about whether or not he was going to ever make music again. I mean, he even had the opportunity. Tom Petty offered him to be the official drummer of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They played... You go back to 96, I think. SNL, yeah. SNL, that, that's, yeah a big, can, that's a big chapter in the book. Yeah. And yeah. after that, Tom Petty was like, hey, man, the gig's yours. And think about that. Like, that's so he would have played like Super Bowl halftime show, guaranteed sold out arena tours all over the world. Like, that was a guaranteed meal ticket. Honestly, probably would have made more money than he did in Nirvana. And I give him so much credit that he tur- not only did he turn that down, to focus on Foo Fighters, but after the Foo Fighters started, um, he was adamant that the people he recruited for the band, which was not initially Taylor Hawkins on that first album, um, it was William Goldsmith. That's another good story. Yes. Uh, that he was adamant that if we're doing this, we're doing it the right way and we're doing it from square one, including no tour buses, no fucking five-star villas in Cabo. Like we're, we're grinding this out like we did in the early Nirvana days. And Dave has this amazing show um, that's all about, or it's, or it's like a documentary about like these huge bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers and, um, and uh, fucking Fleetwood Mac and these like huge bands that are global phenomenons that all started out in a van, Metallica. Um, and he knew the bonding power uh, and the like test of authenticity that one goes through when you and your four bandmates can get into a van and traverse the country and play shitty weekday shows and not have a manager hooking everything up, even though Dave could have afforded all that at the time. I think that I give him so much respect for doing that. And I give a lot of respect to the other band members who at the time when they were joining up probably thought like, holy shit, this is just going to be like a pet project for the drummer of Nirvana. You know, this is at the time where no one knew Foo Fighters. There were no singles on the radio. It was literally a cassette tape that was in circulation that Dave 
did was writing those songs while Kurt was still alive and, you know, showed him all those songs. And I don't think he even had the intention at that time of like the Foo Fighters needs to be like a thing that has a live touring iteration with branding and whatever. He just makes music to make music. And I think the Foo Fighters is really important to him in kind of extension by me because I grew up on Nirvana. That is like, it was almost like passing the torch. It is not, it's so incorrect to call it like the next Nirvana or Nirvana reborn or something. It's a totally different animal, but it came from, uh, it's like rehab for getting over the death of one of his best friends in the fucking nineties. And I feel, I honestly feel that that's where we're at right now. We are at that precipice. We're at that threshold where yeah, I, this is based on nothing other than just like a historical understanding of him as a person and the band is I think Foo Fighters are done. I cannot possibly imagine Dave Grohl justifying replacing Taylor Hawkins on the drums. The one thing I could imagine would be Dave sitting behind the drums and then I guess still doing vocal duties, which is entirely possible. Phil Collins did it. Um, and then like getting some other, big heavy hitter to replace him on guitar, but more likely I could see him being like, we had 26 incredible years. We did eight albums with Taylor. Um, we've so I mean, literally you've done everything, including, and I just watched this two nights ago, record a fucking, they'd made a horror movie called studio six, 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 which is absolutely incredible and, and insane. But I, I just can't imagine him not closing this chapter, but I do think that it will lead to him doing other incredible things, but it's, it's, so it's, it's cathartic almost like it's very sad to know that this is the end of that chapter. And of course it's sad, the loss of human life and an incredible drummer. Um, but I just, it would, it would really blow my mind at this point if uh, some iteration of the Foo Fighters continue to live on. So reading the book, so I'm coming at Foo Fighters from a little bit different angle than you, just because, I mean, you are, you're a huge you've been a huge fan been a huge fan since you've heard him i'm assuming yep and followed and gone to many live shows all that kind of stuff so many all over the world too yeah yeah which is awesome for me i feel like i didn't like for me they were the band that was always on the radio and i always enjoyed the singles and i think they were on the radio so much that i never felt compelled to go like purchase the album back in the day um, but so it was really very, very recently that I found myself getting really, really into them. And that came Sorry, from, just to clarify, you've, yeah. you've never owned a Foo Fighters album? Uh, not legally, no. There's no, there's no shame in it. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, because I know no. how you're, you have this ravenous appetite for 90s music. So Right, yeah. So um, in preparation for shooting or doing this episode with you, I was trying to think like they kind of fit in that, that, that tier of bands where it's like uh, U2, R.E.M., I don't necessarily go out of my way to like play them on my Spotify playlist every day. Yeah. I understand their importance to rock history. Yeah. I understand why they're some people's favorite bands to the point that people follow them along on the road. Yep. Um, all that kind of stuff. I put Foo Fighters kind of in that pantheon, if you will. Yeah. Um, but they're no, they're not leading like my current Spotify playlist and things like that. Um, it was really until recently, and it was really reading the Dave Grohl book that made me fall in love with the band for the first time. Like I said, I, I mean, who doesn't love learn to fly? You know, I, the one album I burned from the Watertown public library, <laughs> nothing left to lose, like stacked actors. You know, I love that song. That's a fucking and, great song. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm the, and it's, I'm a, the kind it's of, a different yeah. song. That's something like I've I've wanted to dive into the catalog with you because uh, Dave Grohl has said this in many interviews, but the he's like the secret sauce for writing a hit Foo Fighter song is have every part is a chorus. Like every single part of it is like uh, it's a catchy riff that you can hum along with. The verse has a feel that's almost as anthemic and repeatable as a chorus is intended to. And then the chorus itself is something that is like infectious. And then, and they do, he's done that very well as many bands have done well, but I think Foo Fighters have done it with a longevity that has not been seen by, I would say any band from the nineties. Would you agree with that? It's incredible how consistent they are, right? Like every two to three years, I don't have the math in front of me, but it feels like every two to three years, they're delivering something and there's no, there's no dud album amongst any of the, uh, of any of them. Um, But to back to the point, what what really stood out to me about the book was just Dave Grohl's enthusiasm for not just music, but for life and credit to him as a writer. I don't know if he had a ghostwriter or assistance, whatever. Uh, But it definitely shone through just like a childlike enthusiasm for all these different segments in his life. And down to like, he is the guy, you never hear about the 99 who failed doing this, but he is the guy who dropped out of high school to join a hardcore band or whatever, a punk band, Scream. Yeah, Scream. And, uh, and, you know, with established guys in probably one of the most difficult scenes to break into, a completely self-taught, self-made guy. And it was just incredible to like follow his journey through Nirvana and, recording those demos for the first self-titled Foo Fighters album. And then he tells this incredible story near the end of the book about how it's just fun to watch him become like a dad. Cause you think about like this awesome rock star, like doing shots and putting on huge shows. And then the guy has a couple of daughters and it's like, he made a promise to them that he was going to go to like whatever their daddy daughter dances and yep. fourth or fifth grade. And, but he's on tour in Australia. So he works it out with his manager. He plays a show in like Melbourne, boards a 24 hour flight back to California, attends his daughter's dance, and then hops on a flight immediately after that dance, 24 hours back and plays a show the next night in like <laughs> Perth or something like that. And it's like, I didn't like, I always looked at Dave as like, he's kind of known as like the friendly guy of rock, like, yep. like just his positive attitude is not only is it in contrast to like, you know, Kurt Cobain or other people in the rock scene where it yeah. seems like the more miserable you are, the more legitimacy you have. The guy always looks like, and you believe is having the time of his life every single night out on stage. Good. And for me, reading that. that book, going through that, and then going back through the music has been an awesome experience. And then that's why it was just so, I, you know, shocking just in general when, when Hawkins passed away. So yeah, uh, what an very, incredible legacy, though, that he left behind. Absolutely. I don't think um, you covered a lot of really important stuff there in terms of uh, it's part of the reason why I like Dave Grohl so much and like ad- admire him uh, is that he has managed to retain the. It, Yes, it is within the realm of possibility that this is like a character. It's an image that's been upheld, but it would be so difficult over like almost three decades to maintain the mirage that he's like legitimately the friendly guy. guy. Yeah, Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's so cool to see him do all these collaborations out of the love of music. Like 
the way I got into um, Zach Brown band, the guy, little bit of chicken pride. Oh, I know. Beer. I know them well. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Zach Brown, who is an incredible musician and guitar player, but also, you know, wants to make money. So he'll make songs like chicken fried um, hired approached Dave Grohl about it. And then with obviously with his interest, hired him to produce the uh, Zach Brown band EP. That's just called the Grohl sessions. It's awesome, dude. Like it, it's so it's definitely still like Zach Brown uh, genre, but like it's got Grohl all over it in terms of just like from a writing perspective. And there's some like really cool like rock breakdowns. I would strongly recommend that you listen to it and that other people, you know, it's on Spotify. You listen to it for free. I've, I've got it up on my Spotify right now. It's four songs. There's this one song. The last song in the, is uh, Day of the Dead. Has some like legit cool, funky ass rock breakdowns that I would never expect to come from Zach Brown. And then after that, they like formed this relationship. And as, as I'm sure Dave is literally every day that he's like a functional member of the music community, forming relationships with incredible people or local people you've never heard of, but are uprising talents uh, every single day. And it leads to something like Sonic Highways, which I think is one of the coolest musical projects to ever see the light of day, where it is, Foo Fighters and a documentary crew go to eight important cities. They're not the biggest cities, but important cities in terms of music history for America. And in each, there's a, there's a, it's an eight episode mini series on HBO that has an accompanying album. And every episode of the show on HBO called Sonic Highways is like, they go to Chicago and he will interview as many people as he can get a hold of that are still alive from as wide of a variety of different genres, including like, you know, it's Muddy Waters and it's the lead singer of Naked Ray Gun and it's a guy from a thrash metal band and it's Moby and it's Reba McIntyre. And it's all these people have these Chicago connections. And it's also talking to like studio owners and people who owned iconic venues that aren't open anymore and people who used to run fanzines for band before anything online was available. And it's about 54 minutes of the show is that it's like a documentary about the music history of these cities. And then the last six minutes of it is the Foo Fighters going into an iconic studio in that city with an iconic producer and engineer and writing a song on the spot there. And then the lyrics for each song is entirely inspired by and actually pulls direct quotes from all of the interviews that happened with those like Chicago industry people up to that point. It's, it's such like a, to me, it's like a love letter to American music history, both past and present and future. And it includes, so Zach Brown's in the Nashville episode. And if you told me that, so since 1998, Foo Fighters have been my favorite band. And before that Nirvana was my favorite band. And I was just thrilled that there was something that came after Nirvana. I didn't look at it as a replacement, but it was, you know, a remnant. And after the color and the shape came out, which has like Everlong and uh, my hero and monkey wrench to me, that was peak. I was like, Holy shit. This is like my favorite fucking album. And I'm, I'm good. And I was like, if they do another one after this, great, but whatever. If you were to tell me that between 1998 to, to right now, 2022, that they would become the biggest fucking rock band on the planet and have so many different just iterations. So first of all, super prolific, um, you know, touring all the time, cool collaborations, cool side projects, 
multiple documentaries, this horror movie that I was just talking about. Um, uh, just like the, I'm thrilled. Like I, I'm thankful. Like it's so, I've been reflecting a lot on the passing of Taylor and then what that probably means for the Foo Fighters. And I mourn obviously his death, but also the probably the death of the continuation of the Foo Fighters. But like, I'm so grateful that I got like almost three decades of my life of nonstop awesomeness. I was like, every time I was like, holy shit, what a great album and cool. But like, I'm not, I didn't expect this book and didn't expect this movie. And I did like their own TV show. And they and also like, did stunts like uh, when the Westboro Baptist <laughs> church was protesting. <laughs> yes. They, I would, they wear costumes and show up and played in the back of a, a trailer. Yes, yes. And they released yeah. a accompanying song and music video called hot buns that you should look up. It's all of them dressed as truckers in very, very short jean shorts, like where their ass cheeks are coming out and they're all kind of like slowly caressing each other in a shower and bathing each other. And it's a uh, very, it, it's very, they're having fun with the fact that the Westboro Baptist church are uh, terrible humans. Dave, uh, qu- I just, quick question. I gonna, yeah, are, go you, ahead. Are, are you having a beverage? I feel very, this feels very one-sided here. Right here. Yeah. Oh, right the, in the, in the BBK. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Love it. Nice. I got to rep the new agency. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But some Ukrainian vodka I picked up. Mm. Is that true? Don't ask me to re- to uh, report how to say it, but uh, yeah, there's like a big uh, at the grocery store. They had big Ukrainian flags, and they're like, "Buy this!" And I'm like, "I am a sucker if if nothing else for advertising like that." So, there you go. There you go. Nice. I wanted nice. to mention that we need to write a petition maybe tonight, asking HBO Max to put Sonic Highways back up. Because be after nice. reading the book and after we chatted, I'm like, they have literally everything on HBO Max down to like. Crypt Keeper episodes from 1982. <laughs> the one thing, the one thing not on there is Foo Fighters Sonic Highways, and it blows my mind. Yeah, I can only imagine that has something to do with licensing or production companies or something like that. And um, I'm I am willing to bet that given the power of the passing of Taylor, that it will it'll come back. You can also buy it. I mean, I know that's a crazy thought, but you can get it on. Uh, I I have it. Uh, I mean, it's so rare these days that I buy music, but yeah, like I said, there's something special about that series and the accompanying album. So you can download it from iTunes and I would, or Apple music. And what, was the, what was the last music you bought? It's a great question. Um, probably the last tool album. It's like, that's a good example of basically the opposite of Foo Fighters. So that's a band that I've liked since 1996 and they've put out like, five albums in that time period since 96 to last year and they tour maybe one tour every five years and um again i'm thankful for that i also love nine inch nails and they have a very similar um you know they're that that lack of i don't know what the opposite of prolific is but that um i'm very Sele- thankful very selective yeah exactly, exactly. like a david fincher movie for sure, but I also, but I don't feel like I truly don't feel that there was ever a throwaway Foo Fighters album. I really don't. So um, you had mentioned that Color and Shape was your favorite. What about that first? Well, I guess it was either based off the Dave Grohl demos, or they are the Dave Grohl demos. The that first self-titled album with like Dave yeah, like the Ray, the, the Ray Gun album. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, Where does that fit in the pantheon? Is that is that Foo Fighters canon? Is that oh, really the debut? Oh, hundred. Yeah. A thousand percent. Yes. Um, and it's interesting because, so I'm actually going to pull up the, um, the Wikipedia page here. Cause I want to look at the, their discography in 
um, chronological order. Um, it's interesting. There is elements of the first album that I feel have disappeared over time with, with each album. There is less and less, um, I guess quirky is the word that I would use. There it's, are it's some, very mellow too. Don't you think the first album, the first one? Yeah. It has very mellow aspects, but then it also has like weenie beanie and watershed and songs that are almost like hyperbolically like, fuck you motherfucker. <laughs> just like, almost like, like truly distorted vocals and super fast drums. It, but it really does. It has the vibe that it actually feels like it was recorded um, in a garage, which it was not, but it, it has that live kind of vibe. Um, and what did you think? Like, for all the cows, for all the cows is a good example of like a quirky song on that first album that I truly love that like, they just don't do. He's still like a super, like he's specifically known for being a funny, jovial guy, but musically they've gotten further and further away from the quirkier stuff that they did in the early albums, which is, one thing that I've not even lamented, but I just, I kind of wish that they'd revisit it, but I'm still thankful for those early albums. What did uh, young Dave think when that came out? You're, you're a big Nirvana fan. And this comes out of essentially left field. Yeah. So what do you make of it? Uh, it was actually, so I learned both. I've been self-taught on guitar and drums and nevermind by Nirvana was the impetus for me to, it was the thing that I learned I have no idea how to read like guitar music or anything like that. I was all um, just by ear. And that's exactly like Dave himself. Yeah, he exactly. tells a great yeah. story. He took one lesson, did horribly, <laughs> and then would sit in at like listen to like jazz music, jazz musicians and try to copy what they were doing. And he'd play on pillows um, on on the ground. Right. Like when he was telling stories like that, like that's literally I would do that shit or I do that with like pots and pans and wooden spoons until I saved up enough money to buy my first piece of shit used drum set from White House Music in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin. Um, there was there were many moments like that during the his stories. I'm like, God damn, dude. It's like, I don't want to say kindred spirits because it sounds absurd, but like I felt more connected to him while hearing him tell those stories than I ever have over 30, almost 30 years of being a fan um, because you're listening to one of the biggest rock stars in the world speak, but he comes from such humble roots. And then like a huge thing for me is uh, he put out a show late last year on Paramount called cradle to the stage, which is the name of a book that his mother wrote. And it's the book is all interviews with huge musicians and their mothers and talking about the relationship. They're all single uh, parent musician or, you know, kids that grew up to become. So it's like, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, Pharrell, uh, the lead singer of Rush, Miranda Lambert, uh, the lead singer of Imagine Dragons. And um, I when I came from a rough background and like I grew up with a, with a single mom and we're incredibly close and I get all of my musical talent and inclination and, and drive from her and her side of the family. And it's like just the more the more I learn about him and the more that he puts his the more that Dave puts his passion and talent and focus on music outside of the Foo Fighters, the more I feel connected to him. And like, I know him and I feel like these are the things that drive me to do what I'm doing. And I just, I don't, I fucking love him. If I haven't made that clear, I love Dave Grohl. So plus you have the same name. I mean, have you ever met another Dave you didn't like? It's a great question. Um, I'm going to initially say no, but I guarantee there's a yes. 
because every Rob I meet, I, I wind up liking. I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't oh. know if everyone's like that. Does every Angela love all other Angelas? I don't know. But it just, for me and my personal life experience, all of the Robs have been solid dudes. I did have a client. His name was David Beliscus. And uh, he was an employee of one of my clients that I uh, thoroughly did not enjoy. So there are, and but he did go by David. Very clear. Yeah. Like he would like, I think it's people, different. So. I think it's different. Okay. I'm not including Agreed. Roberts. Agreed. Okay. I'm not including Roberts. Yeah. I'm, I'm on board with that. Or That's, Bobby's. Uh, uh, oh. Don't even, don't even come at me if you're Bobby. Mm, That's yeah. <laughs> grow up. Okay. It's time to grow up. Yes. Um, so I'm looking through this. Um, the discography here and it's just it it's just like a blast in the past for me like it's so interesting so Foo Fighters that first album so that had Big Me on it which had like the Mentos uh mock video for the music video and um uh that that was 95 and then but that was there are there are literally still people who are figuring out and like having this epiphany that Dave Grohl was the drummer for Nirvana, which part of that is like, oh, Jesus Christ. And part of, part of it's like, that's kind of cool to know that that wasn't like the single handed reason why Foo Fighters achieved success. Like it's um, like, I would actually, I would argue that more people knew that Jacob Dylan was Bob Dylan's son when the wallflowers came out, than people knew that Dave Grohl was the drummer for Nirvana when Foo Fighters came out. Would you, would I, you absolutely, that? I absolutely agree with that. Okay. Okay. And as someone who has religiously read like every piece of musical text, yeah. I mean, literal text, like yeah, magazines yeah. and things like that, yeah. you and while I have a Wallflowers album hanging framed in my basement sure. for my bona fides. And you nothing, cannot, nothing against no, no, no. Wallflowers. I, right I'm, yeah. I'm making your point. Yeah. yeah. You cannot find a review or a mention of the Wallflowers without the word and Jacob Dylan without the words, Bob Dylan, like immediately happening right after that. Yep. They are like part and parcel together. Yep. For sure. Whereas there is some space for whatever reason, uh, whether people didn't realize it or, uh, you know, he's singing now. So it's not, he's it's not the drummer from Nirvana, whatever it is, there's some space between that. Was it mentioned yep. every single time on the radio and, and all that? Yeah, for sure. I think there's, there's several examples of that. Like with, um, so Johnny Cash's last album was a cover album before he died. And he actually picked some incredible songs, uh, like including Soundgarden. And he also did Hurt by Nine Inch Nails. And I cannot tell you how many people, including one of my one of my best friends, I was the best man in his wedding. And we went to he he act, he, he wouldn't say that he was like a huge Nine Inch Nails fan, but we went to a Nine Inch Nails show together. And I know every what you're going to say. That's why my hands on my face. Every single show. Sent in the same way that Foo Fighters have always ended their shows with Everlong since that album came out. Every single Nine Inch Nails show has always ended with Hurt since the Downward Spiral came out in the early 90s. And it's the end of the show and Hurt starts and he turns to me. He's like, oh, that's so cool that they're doing that Johnny Cat. He like almost I almost <laughs> yeah. slapped him in the face oh. before he could finish that sentence. And, and you guys are the same age, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. there's this new trend. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, but I've worked with a lot of uh young interns over the past five years, people just coming out of college, 21, 22. And I don't know where they get these shirts, but it, there are people who wear Nirvana shirts the way they wear like Tommy Hilfiger. Sure. Like they think, I don't know if I think half of them maybe know it's like a classic band and the other half think it's some kind of like fashion item. Yeah. Like I, I asked a couple of 
young people who I'd worked with. I'm so, making myself ancient. I know I'm 36, <laughs> but uh, you know, 15 year age difference. I'm like, can you name a single Nirvana song? And of course, the answer is no. There is an like interesting debate around that. I see it everywhere. That. I see that shirt everywhere now. So there's a there's a wider debate about that in general, and I, I think I know the answer to it as it applies to everything. But like, there's this great side by side picture of Khloe Kardashian wearing a Slayer shirt, <laughs> and then Carrie King, who's the guitar player from Slayer, wearing a shirt that says "Kill the Kardashians," and there is something. You know, there's been this whole thing. It's like, man, if I saw fucking Chloe on the street and she was wearing a Slayer shirt, I'd fucking shit on her so hard. Like, I'd go up to her and be like, fuck you, name one Slayer song. And it's like, I I see it from both angles, right? Like, I see it being like, don't, like, you're a poser, right? If you're specifically wearing a band's merch because you want to, like, get cred for it. But in the scenario of, like, a Kardashian wearing it, I don't think she's trying to get slayer street cred she's just I, yeah she has enough uh, followers and, and social media credibility yeah um i don't know so this part of me that's just like whatever if you bought the shirt and the band got money from you buying the shirt you can wear whatever the fuck you want i guess it should be like you can do whatever you want but you aren't insulated from fans of that thing entity organization band whatever even if it's a politician uh if you're wearing like you're a billboard right you you walk around you're wearing a fucking uh, announcement on your chest that says I personally align with this, then you open yourself up to criticism. So I guess it I'm on the mindset you can wear it, but be ready to be called out. Maybe there's a couple other ones in there, but it seems to really only be Nirvana. Like if you see someone wearing a clearance Clearwater Revival t-shirt, like <laughs> pretty, pretty good chance they know Fortunate Son, you know what I mean? Or like you see people wearing retro sports jerseys like Larry Bird, because it's funny to wear like the whitest player of all time. But you you probably know a little bit about basketball. You're not just buying that. Like I don't even know who he is. He has yes. a first name. I thought it was just said Bird. Quick note: Have you been watching Winning Time? The yes. Oh my yes. god! It's on HBO, the, the yes. story of the Lakers at the time where it's like, first of all, I don't give a shit about basketball. I know. I was going to say this is the show that can bring everyone together. Like oh hardcore god, sports fan, you don't need to like sports, right? So good. Yeah. It's so good. Um, John yeah, C. Riley, perfectly cast. Chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. And it's, it's uh, Adam McKay is directing it and it has like all of the sports credibility that it needs. Like there is a almost uh, documentary aspect to it, even stylistically, like they shot a lot of it on cameras that were, um, you know, cutting edge at the time. What is that? Like mid to late eighties type thing. Um, and it was getting sidetracked, but Oh, on a let's segue from there. Something yeah. I loved that Dave and then by extension, the Foo Fighters did is in the Sound City uh, documentary. Sound City is the name of a very famous um, studio in Los Angeles that was at the time where recording analog, so like literally recording to tape, uh, was everything. There was the way to get the best type of music, the best recording. Sound City was the place to go. And then Sound City refused to uh, basically adopt new technology and evolve with the times and it fell by the wayside and went out of business. And when it went out of business, Dave Grohl went in there and bought the it's Neve is the, is the guy who designed the soundboard that's in there. But um, he did this whole documentary about the history of all of the bands that have recorded at sound city, including Nirvana uh, and all of the, like, so with a soundboard, it's literally, I know it's weird to think about it like uh, tangibly, but all of these songs have 
physically traveled through this piece of electronic equipment. And in the same way that like an amazing venue has like CBGB or the whiskey or something like that, like if Zeppelin played there, like there's, there's some history in those walls, like sound or the Beatles, you know, playing in a certain, like, like things linger, there's an energy, there's an essence. So he very much so believed that with this Neve console that was at Sound City, he bought, and it's huge. It's literally the size of like a car. He bought that, had it deconstructed, built a studio in his own house with that uh, console, and then invited all of these, a huge array of artists, including like Hard Rock and Bruce Springsteen and Queens of the Stone Age and Stevie Nicks and Rick Springfield to all get together and record a new album of all brand new songs um, through that soundboard. And since that point, Foo Fighters have been huge about recording analog. And they, I mean, they have an incredible team of engineers and producers working with them to make sure. So working digitally allows you to alter basically anything that you want. Recording analog literally requires like the physical uh, augmentation of tape. Yes. Yeah. And um, so they did did that with wasting light. That's when they made the- Yes. That might be- Transition back. Going, looking at the albums here, that might be number two for me so something special about that album man. Like, and they brought back awesome. butch vig mm-hmm. yeah. yeah butch vig well, i want to make the point i i made the pil- pilgrimage easy for me to say to butch vig's no longer in existence studio i'm in i'm in madison wisconsin but yeah. i remember i was like a kid in a candy store i was messaging you that morning being yeah. like oh my god I'm, I'm going to go to smart studios in Madison. I can't believe I've never stopped here before. And it's like a little just, brick shithole, right? It's yeah, just, it's like a very yeah. vis- un- unappealing like, building. Yes. Yeah. It's been left, left for dead. So I went online, did some research and someone literally just bought it like six months ago for about $800,000, which wow. is way over value. So I'm thinking, I don't know what they're going to do with it. Hopefully they're not knocking it down and turning it into apartments, but and it could, we missed our chance. We missed our chance for all-time great podcasting studio. We could have oh, gone fuck. in on it together. We could have bought some, uh, I don't know, some old microphones, Nirvana recording microphones, and started a museum. Even with that, there would be four months out of the year that I would not come and record episodes with you because I fucking hate yeah. winter, and I've put in my time, and I'm not coming back to Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. Oh, you're lucky. It was, it's been miserable here this week. Oh, it was miserable here too. You can see I'm wearing long sleeves and it was 89 today. And like the amount of times I had to push up these sleeves because it was, uh, that's rough. That's it was rough. toasty. Yeah. I really wish I had a cutoff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so, so, uh, Butch Vig, there are, there are certain partnerships that the Foo Fighters and then Dave Roll specifically have had over the years that have helped kind of preserve this sound uh, and look and credibility that they've had. And Butch Vig was a big part of that. Butch Vig, for those who don't know, like iconic, legendary producer who's also in the band Garbage, um, but worked with Nirvana at their peak. And a lot of Nevermind was recorded at Smart Studios, which Rob was just talking about. And there have been several albums, singles, and projects that Foo Fighters have worked with Butch Vig on since then. And he, there's something he just gets. Um, and it's not just a matter of like, it's not a matter of like snobbery or just being like, I'm a music aficionado or I know the history or whatever. It's, it's, it's knowing magic when it's happening and being able to articulate that to a group of musicians in the exact way that they need to hear it um, to be able to do what they need to do to, to capture that magic 
on tape. And a good example well, of that ooh, is I got a good story about that. Okay, go ahead. You go. Oh, I, was, I I don't know how YouTube algorithm works, but it's been surfacing yeah. all these butch fig videos. For I'm me. listening. I got a my mini fridge right here. I'm just gonna grab a drink, but I'm still yeah, listening. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. So YouTube's been surfacing all these butch fig videos where he takes us through recording each of the Nirvana Nevermind tracks. And they're not like super, the, the videos themselves, I don't know who is responsible for them or if they're part of some larger documentary I'm not aware of. Um, but it really helped me, a total novice uh, on recording music, like understand how it works. Yep. Um, but so I've watched a bunch of them. One that really stood out to me because this song has made a huge comeback. In fact, it's charted on Spotify again, Something in the Way, which is part of the Batman soundtrack. The, the Batman, yeah. yeah. Uh, he talked about how Kurt, you know, he's in the studio portion and keeps playing it, keeps playing it, and he's furious, pissed off. He's just not getting it the way he wants to get it. Yep. And so you're gonna you're gonna have to help me with the terminology on this. Sure. So sure. Butch invites him to the other side of the glass, you know, where all the all the knobs are. Yep. And he's like, Kurt, just play it how you like. Show me how what you want to do. And he starts playing so softly and so quietly. Butch realizes this is how they need to capture it. So he says he takes like six microphones and puts them on that side of the glass yeah. and re literally records that part of the song. And it's, you need total silence to pull this off. And they finally capture like just the sheer, how quiet Kurt wanted that. And then there's other kind of funny videos too, where Kurt well, very, I want to focus yeah, on yeah. the importance of that for a second, because of the, the, that is the equivalent of going to a James Beard award-winning Michelin star rated restaurant and eating in the kitchen. Right. Record this on the couch, not hooked up to all the equipment we have. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's not just the equipment, like a, the, a live room where music is being recorded is specifically crafted with unbelievable accuracy to be sonically perfect and intended to capture all the different elements of that instrument, and that performance. And then the room where the engineer is and where like the music is being recorded and mixed and where you go to listen after it's been recorded has almost the exact opposite. It is this very like it's almost dead. Like you just want to hear exactly what's coming out of the speakers when you're sitting right in front of them. And when you were to the side of them, you're supposed to hear almost nothing and you hear nothing from outside of the room. So there's, um, it, that was like a, I don't, that wasn't gimmicky. Like that was exactly what you're saying. That was him recognizing the magic and adapting the scenario to be able to get that song to be what it needed to be. And it's not like, it's not like a single, that song is like crazy depressed. I think it's the most depressing song. No, it's Nirvana incredible. It's made yeah. a comeback in 2022. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The other thing you mentioned too, is he had to fool Kurt at times because he wanted to like double track, triple track all the guitar lines this is, and, and, vocals, saying, oh, and vocals. He's like, yeah, he kept being like, Oh, I didn't catch that. I didn't have the, I didn't have it on. Can you play it again? Just so we could start layering that stuff because Kurt yes. was so against it. Yes. Even even after the album came out, he was saying how he didn't like how it was recorded. But so in recording, when you double something, it has just become so much sonically richer. Um, and vocals is a big part of that. And he was like, Kurt was so big on like, when you listen to Bleach, the album that came out before Nevermind, and then you listen to Nevermind, it sounds like the same band, but it's crazy to think that Bleach also came out from like, they had a record label and they had funds and everything. That sounds like what I, I'm not saying I sounded like Nirvana in eighth grade, but it sounded that crazy, that fucking like 
what I'm just going to crank the amp as loud as possible. We're going to do one take of this. I'm going to scream into a microphone, no editing and we're done. And then you listen to Nevermind. And it is this like incredibly, it still has captures of the essence of grunge and Nirvana and everything, but it is like an unbelievably refined product. And there are parts, there's interviews with Butch Vig where he talked about, he knew that on songs like to make the chorus of in bloom and smells like teen spirit as powerful as they needed to be is that they needed to double the vocals, which something that literally just, okay, sing the part and then go back and sing it again at the same time. And we're going to play them on top of each other. Uh, Kurt viewed that as like commercial corporate bullshit. This is what pop stars do, which is also true, but it just sounds better. Um, And he, though, instead of like tricking him in that way, he kept on telling him he knew how much Kurt loved the Beatles. And he kept telling him like, this is, he would bring in like, like intense notes about the recording of like uh, yellow submarine and stuff. And he would show him like, this is how John Lennon records vocals like this. You love the Beatles. This is what the Beatles do. So um, he, same thing. Like he understood how to work with how to make something more professional when it needed to be and how to strip something all the way down when it needed to be. So there's something he gets it, man. There's just something special about that guy. Um, so it's very cool to have him partnered with the Foo Fighters. So you mentioned wasting light was number two for you. So one is color and shape. It's <sighs> so hard. Wasting light. It's so hard. Is, it, is there is there a third, or you want to talk a little bit about why you why those are the top two? Okay, so I'll start with just like looking at. So let's talk about how prolific they are. So first album self titled ninety five color and the shape ninety seven. That's I think might be their commercially their biggest commercial record because again that had just in terms of sales. It's interesting because at that time period, and I, you talked about this with Bush as well in your first episode is that with that album. And then when there's, there's nothing left to lose, which has learned to fly on it is that you're entering a time period where album physical album sales as a whole are starting to plummet anyways, because of the rise of Napster and whatnot. Yeah, so Napster's like what? 2000. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, but there, there were things before Napster. And so the nothing left to lose 99 one by one uh, is in 2002. Uh, which has All My Life on it, which I actually think is their best performing single of all time. I'm going to open up the wiki on that. Uh, In Your Honor is 2005. That was a double album. That was super cool. Like that, I was, this was, in my mind, this is the beginning of Dave being like, we're established enough that we can do anything and exactly what we want. So that album has- We're rock gods. Yeah, but but without being pretentious fucking pricks about it. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And that album has- it's double album. One disc is all fucking awesome rock stuff. And one is all acoustic and not just acoustic, like acoustic. They did an acoustic tour after this album. It was the skin and bones tour with like a small orchestra and an accordion player. And um, it's gorgeous. It's fucking beautiful. And they had, they had plenty of songs that they wrote for that, including cold day in the sun, which is written by written and sung by, Taylor Hawkins and might be one of my top, I don't know, 20 Foo Fighters songs. It's just great. Um, but we we got to go back to one by one by for okay. a second. Okay. So they re- originally recorded 10 tracks for what this becomes yep. for a million dollars. They were, they were given to record. <laughs> that doesn't exist. And, and it doesn't happen anymore. Like no, there's no, no one is spending that. Yeah. Everything is scrapped. Dave's miserable with the, with the output. And even in his book, he, he said that it's got six songs that I love and then six I'll never play again. Yeah. But it's like okay. the only one, it was the most difficult to make. And the one I've just from reading the book that he's most down on other than 
obviously one by one and a few other songs out that does that track for you or do you love it yes. from start to finish? Nope. I absolutely don't. And I, I think that that is part of whatever. I don't need someone else to like, give me a pat on the back for being a genuine fan, but like liking anything that an artist does because the artist did it, I don't think is the hallmark of a good fan. Um, I think everyone is entitled to their opinion and it's it was interesting so like it did i was so pumped about this album this album was when the foo fighters launched their website and they had a countdown like a month-long countdown and i my, my screensaver in co- my freshman year of college was this countdown to the release of this album for an entire month and i i built it up a lot in my mind because of that and you know all my life had come out as a single before then and you know, it's fucking awesome. Um, although times like these is probably became is one of the most timeless. It's like the it's a class, it's like top three or four classic Foo Fighter songs of all time is also on that album. And it's interesting that there's these like super amazing songs in there. And there are songs in there that I specifically am like, I just flat out don't like. And to when I heard, it's not like he did a media tour and right off the bat was like, hey, just so you know, stop listening after track five. But it wasn't long after that, that he was doing interviews and saying like, this is not reflective. He's basically saying it's reflective of where I'm at emotionally, which is not good. And therefore, I don't love this album. And I give him credit for being that honest about it. And I do think this is one of the first albums where they did the whole like, we're going to all move into a house together. And recorded ourselves. I mean, they they have like a producer coming, but still, like this isn't going to be. Let's let's do some crazy. I think this is at, after what you said, where they scrap it. Then they're like, yeah. we need to go back to square one and, and get into a house together. Um, but no, it, to answer your question, it absolutely does track. There are some of my most of my least favorite Foo Fighter songs are on this album. That that's good that you don't let your fandom overshadow. You know, your looking at things from a even keeled perspective because mm-hmm. I. I lived with pretending or having to be a Star Wars Phantom Menace fan for like way too long in my life. But I just love the franchise so much. I held water for that movie for like 10 years too long. And they appreciate and, it. Uh, yeah. 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 George Lucas really needed the money. Uh, so we said, yeah, Foo Fighters have no bad albums. They have a bad half album. And I sure. think that's about it. Although I'd say the, the last one, let's not skip ahead to it yet, but sure. the very last one they put out, uh, was maybe controversial. I know we got into it a little bit over a blogger or someone who had compiled one of those articles. But. <laughs> yes. So, yes. so in your honor, I mean, and uh, best of you is, I mean, God, they just have so many massive singles. That one's yeah. definitely. Yeah, that. these are these yeah. are big ones for sure. And it's really interesting again because you would think like um, when you think about other bands that have, I think about Soundgarden and I think about Black Hole Sun thing about felon black days these are the albums and they have way more albums than that but those are the albums that like defined them as a band and sealed them as seattle and grunge greats so it's interesting that the foo fighters have this album that have times like these and all my life um and have it all is technically a single i don't think it did very well but it's like it that's one of my top 10 favorite foo fighter songs super cool like hard rock breakdown at the end um, to also simultaneously be Dave's least favorite album and not, not that it is of significance, but also to your question, like tracks with my enjoyment of it. Um, 
is just very interesting to me, you know, like, and, but also with the Soundgarden example, Soundgarden ended after those albums. And this is just, you know, Foo Fighters are basically just getting started here. This isn't even halfway through their discography. Yeah. I, now I look at the next, next one echoes silence, patience, grace as like part two of the Foo Fighters. It, it kind of neatly divides along the actual timeline, yep. but just, just speaking as an individual music fan, it's like, yeah, I mean, like I mentioned, I was into best of best of you. I was into the radio singles. This one, when Pretender comes out, yep. like I'm back. Like if I was living in Oshkosh at the time, they're coming <laughs> to Oshkosh. I'm going to the concert, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this was for- also the, the heyday of, oh, you'd walk into a bar and you could pay to play to, you know, those yeah. pay iTunes or whatever it was. Yep. Touch tunes. Like, yeah. 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 Like 23 year old Rob Ebert is playing the Pretender like every night he's going out. And fucking great song like this, and it's, this is way up there in my in my favorites absolutely and it's interesting because if you if foo fighters weren't big enough that you could i think there's a lot of people who could hear a foo fighter song that they've never heard of before and know it's foo fighters let's pretend foo fighters aren't that big and you listen to something like learn to fly which is like very radio friendly super sing-alongable you know it's still used in like fucking commercials it still gets radio play um the pretender is not that like the pretender is a fucking in your face like bump bump like it's a it is the whole i mean the whole chorus is fucking screaming and people love it so it's it's i thought it was important that they could lead with a single like that that did so well for them and it didn't need to rely on being something that's like my hero or everlong where it's more like epic and guaranteed to like span the like everyone can like this song because it's right. pleasant so, and, something yeah. you'd hear at the dentist office or at the grocery store <laughs> i don't mean that as a slam because no. the vast majority of my favorite songs are those types that get yes. played there yeah but just something pleasant enough that it could be in the background if it's turned down totally yeah. get it totally get it and oh you so you cannot do that with the pretender people are leaving the grocery store yes interesting <laughs> interesting song on kind of going back to what i was talking about being quirky there's this weird revisit of that. There's a track on that album called The Ballad of the Beaconsfield Miners. And it is an instrumental acoustic song that almost has this like folky, twangy, finger plicking, almost like stomp your foot, like hoedown type vibe to it. And it was about a mind collapse that happened and um, about Dave getting connected with one of these guys that lived down there for like 30 days and people died. And um, he was just so inspired by his interaction with them. And it's like, uh, it's just a, it's a quirky sounding song. The story is touching, but like when you'd hear it out of context, you're just like, okay, that was fucking random. The like two minute little hoedown thing. Um, I was happy to see Dave going back to that. And I feel like from that point on, he had more, one-off songs that were like maybe if this was their first album i could see a producer being like that's not going on the album because he's but he's dave Grohl, so anything can go on the fucking album um so i enjoyed that that was great but i this um this album was awesome and this album ends with a song called home and it's dave and piano and it's like i'd get goosebumps thinking about it like it's it's so touching um yeah i just strongly recommend and if you, I guess, especially if you don't like Foo Fighters, go listen to it. Like it is chill as fuck. It's gorgeous. Um, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. Well, this is another, this is one unlike the previous album, like beginning to end. 
I was listening to the track right before home, but honestly on, on a walk today. And I'm yeah. like that, that's pulling at the heartstrings too. I mean, yeah. they really, this album runs the gamut. Like you open with pretender screaming in your face and, and end it with, but honestly in home, like two of the most gorgeous tracks since Aurora. Yeah. Yeah. It's just oh, a complete, I love, uh, complete album. Yeah. I love Aurora. It's such a fucking good song. But then you also like in the middle, you have like, cheer up boys, your makeup's running. Like there, there's, there's certain songs in here. It's this, this album felt like a return to him, to Dave loving the creation, the, the process. Um, I don't know. It just felt fun. Like there's, there's aspects of this album that sound uh, incredibly heartfelt. There's incredibly intense portion, like let it die. Oh, holy shit. I fucking love that song. It's so cool. The transition from, um, very intimate acoustic almost like you're in the room to like get your face ripped off rock by the end of the song and everything in between like i said that ballad of beaconsfield miners and then home uh statues has like a uh a zeppelin kind of fuzzy lo-fi classic rock vibe to it long road to ruin the video for that's hilarious we have mentioned that foo fighters have always done fantastic videos i've always appreciated that that they know they can be super hilarious when they want to. So always love that. Um, we have, then we have wasting light where yep. they go back with Butch Vig. We talked about that. We're recording so on good. tape again, Sonic highways. The hold, on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Let's not skip it. So I, I want to get to concrete and gold. <laughs> so yeah, that's a huge departure. So, but just real quick on, on yeah. wasting light. So yeah, that they did this one on tape and there's just something that you need to be so precise about it when you're doing that. But uh, Arlandria is a top five Foo Fighter song for me. Uh, These Days is an incredible song. Bridge Burning is the opening of that song. Oh, they did something cool for this. For this tour, they did an arena tour, but they also did a garage tour. And they they set up like na- literal neighborhood shows with fans across the country in, in suburbs and stuff. And they played and they filmed them and released them online later. But literally they did like neighborhood block parties out of people's garages and i thought it was great and this album was recorded with that in mind like we don't need stadium production to bring this album to life uh also rope i think is one of the coolest and most different foo fighter singles um it's super intricate it's super it's very minor key it has kind of like creepy melodies about it um it, w- it was i was happy to, to see that being the lead single off of the album because almost to your point from before, if you go back and listen to all of the Foo Fighters singles, I, if someone wanted to say Foo Fighters sounds the same, I wouldn't go to bat and say, fuck you, you're wrong. If you're only listening to radio singles, but a song like Rope is like a decidedly different song. And it was, I thought it was really cool that they, they led with that. So I also think it's interesting. I think the biggest hit as far as radio was Walk. And yep. it's pretty rare for that to be last on an album track. Like Agreed. you go back and I've looked at dozens, hundreds of albums from the nineties or nineties bands. Yep. And it is amazing. I don't know if it's always the record label or who, whoever, but it's almost 99% of the time. The side right, has right. all the singles yeah, on yeah, it. Absolutely. hundred percent. Like throw walk on last last is uh, was an interesting choice. Oh. I didn't love that song. It's not bad. It, just, it was, it was safe. Um, as, as a lover of the singles, man, it, it fits right in that it fits right yeah. in that grouping. Yeah. Just the learning to walk again, opening yes. line. Okay. Yep. I'm in. Totally. You could, you could, you could start a Foo Fighters show with that or 
you know, it's you're not going to end, but you know, the end before the encore. Yeah, yeah, could, could go anywhere in that set list. Hundred percent. So we talked about Sonic Highways, and again, it is its own thing. Like it really is. Like it, there's actually a lot of it that doesn't sound like Foo Fighters, which I appreciate. There are songs that make these crazy ninety degree turns in the middle. Um, and it's very intentional because they wanted to tap into the energy of this journey that they were on. And I'm glad it's a Foo Fighters album, but I, I, I would have understood if it was so like that Studio City album that I was talking about is not a Foo Fighter album. This album almost feels like this, where it's like the Foo Fighters all play on it, but it feels different enough. And it, it's full of guest performers that it maybe even shouldn't have been a Foo Fighter album, but it's still I love it and it's great. But then. Going to concrete and gold is um, a phenomenal departure. Well, that's another, this is again, where our paths intersect. You were visiting at the time. And again, I, you know, I'd been, I'd been into the pretender and, and that album. And <laughs> I, again, just kind of the band, they're always, they're always in the background. I'm listening to them a little bit, but not a lot. Yep. And then concrete and gold comes out and you play for me, the sky is a neighborhood. And this like instantly becomes my new favorite Foo Fighters song. And the, it's like a lot of their tracks, the louder you play it, the better it becomes. Yes, for sure. And it's so cool. Like it's so, uh, it's different. It's It feels like rope to me in that it is like, well, first of all, it's it's poetic. Um, a lot of the other singles have not, not like pedantic or like, you know, trite lyrics, but there's, can be relatively straightforward. The lyrics to this song are very different as far as in terms of Dave Grohl single standards. It's based oh, on a dream that he had. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. He covers that in the book. Very cool. I, so I, I, so Rob and I have talked about this, but I own this book. The last book that I read was uh, the Nirvana biography. This was legit like 20 years ago. I fucking hate reading so much. I want to get the book. On, so I own the book because I got it from that event that I went out to in LA, right. but I want to get like a book on you tape. Need the I, audio tape. Right? I really do. Yeah. I just don't have the I, fucking patience. I have to keep referencing it because you know so much more about the Foo Fighters than I do. It's really the only <laughs> leg up I have in this conversation. So I got to drop those little nuggets in when I can. It's not a competition, but I appreciate that. So, so this album is super cool because Dave Grohl became obsessed with the idea of partnering with this guy, Greg Kirsten, who is this incredible producer that has worked with Bam Gallagher. Yeah. And, and, and then, but other bands that you would like totally oh, I know. not <laughs> expect to be in, in like his repertoire. Um, I'm looking at his, his wiki right now. He has produced four number one songs um, during his time as a producer. He's also in a pretty successful indie band. And, but like the, the album, so he became obsessed with like the idea. He meets this guy randomly on vacation in Hawaii. And, um, Dave was just on a kick of like listening to all the bands that Greg Kirsten had recorded. And there was some essence about it that he really liked and wanted to tap into. He has a drunken conversation with him about it in a swimming pool in Hawaii. He's like, Hey man, you should do one of our albums. And he's like, I'm terrified of that idea. Like you're too, you're, you're too, your essence is too much. Like, I don't even know how I would like tell you what you should be doing is like, that's exactly what I want. I want to kind of unplug. I want to, to kind of retain the Foo Fighter essence, but let you do your thing. And I think part of that resulted in what's um, like Paul McCartney's on this album, Justin Timberlake's on this album, some singers from Boys to Men are on this album. Um, 
there's just, and there's like a lot of different, I wouldn't say complete genre changes, but there's like some huge departures from what the Foo Fighters had done in the past where it sounds, it almost sounds like if the Foo Fighters released an album in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and then you took the best songs of all of those albums and put them on an album, that's concrete and gold. It's really interesting. It's a, it continually amazes me how important the producer is. Like we talked about it with Butch yep. Vig. They really are. This may be a lame analogy, but kind of like the director behind a movie. Like, yeah, you. That's you not a, have, that is not a lame analogy. That's, you that's, can have movies yeah. with great actors in them. But if the person behind the camera or behind the knobs has no idea what they're doing, it's a problem. Sure. Or you could have and, a book that's based off of a phenomenal piece of literature. And then the ball gets dropped in the execution. Like this is what the, the producer is the glue for sure like it's it's super important and and greg kirsten's a personal favorite of mine because as you know i love oasis Mm. and even more than that i love liam gallagher but specifically his solo work has been a hundred percent greg kirsten produced oh cool and he does a lot of the co-writing on everything and just just to prove prove the point you've heard of oasis and you've heard of liam gallagher yeah have you ever heard of bdi that was the band Liam Gallagher was in between Oasis and, and his solo career. And the reason you've never heard of them is because the music is fucking terrible. So, I don't know so- if that would be the reason why I wouldn't heard it. In fact, I'm amazed <laughs> that given his ego that he wouldn't immediately be like, I, of course I might can have my brand be my own name. That's kind of amazing that that wasn't his immediate thought process is fuck Oasis. I'm going to make music under my own name. I'm super fascinated by that. Yeah, you listen to a few tracks if you can, if you can stomach it. Okay. But the point is, like, <laughs> even however they were recording his voice in those days was yep. just not working, and there was a lot of talk of like this guy's lost it, you know, for whatever reason, too yep. old, smoked too many cigarettes, and then he comes back on this Greg Kirsten produced album, and it sounds like it's 1995 again. Huh. And. And uh, yeah, so when I saw that he produced this album and produced those, and then they've all worked together now. And this guy did uh, Hello by Adele. He produced that song as well. So this, right, this, yeah. this dude has yeah. serious like cred. And, yeah, dude. Yeah. yeah, But you were saying, so, and actually I haven't, I haven't heard the song and I'm going to blame you because you told me it was coming, but then you didn't send it to me. So it's kind of your fault, but uh, that explain the, the crossroads of these yeah, guys so- coming together. And th- this is no joke. Like Foo Fighters and and Oasis slash Liam have been uh, connected for quite some time. Like I was looking at, I was watching a on Paramount Plus an old uh, Oasis documentary last night, and then I started looking at some old movie posters. And it's like when Foo Fighters came over to Europe for the first time, they were the opener for Oasis. And then when Liam started his solo career, and uh, Foo Fighters were doing some U.S. dates, uh, Liam opened for them. And there, there's some funny footage of them playing together. And I forget what song now, but it's on YouTube. Um, so they've been connected and then they've been connected through this producer and specifically Liam, who gets along with no one, uh, <laughs> got along great with Taylor, with Taylor Hawkins. Oh, cool. And it was always like saying nice things about him. And when Foo Fighters were playing Wembley or they're playing Glastonbury, one of those, yep, yep. Taylor put the picture of the Gallagher brothers like on his drum kit. So there's always been this connection and, and this respect. And this, they have a new song. Liam has a new album coming out, his third solo album, be out in a couple months. But the first single was a song called Everything's Electric. And this was co-written. The three writers on this album, if you look up the credits, are Liam Gallagher, Greg Kirsten, and Dave Grohl. And Grohl plays the drums. Awesome. So 
yeah, yeah. It's it's fun. I'm surprised they released it as a lead single just because it doesn't have like a massive like radio ready hook. Okay. But it's definitely one I'm never gonna skip. Like when uh when, when the album comes out and I'm going through it. Um, I, th- I think just my expectations got a little out of whack when you combine sure. those names. I thought we'd be getting Wonderwall times smells like teen spirit. Oh, sure. And it sure. turns out yeah. we just got like a really fun rock track with no surprise. I think Dave's drumming is the highlight of it. For sure. But think about that. If you were Gallagher and Grohl getting together, is the conversation really going to be like, let's make a baby between our big, our most commercially successful singles, or would it be, Let's do whatever the fuck we want to do and have fun with this. Yeah, exactly. And longer, that's yeah. exact. That's exactly yeah. what it feels like. Yeah. yeah. Um, so two things before moving on to the next album. One is that um, in the last two years, and I hope this continues, is that during Hanukkah, uh, so uh, Kirsten is Jewish. During ha- during the eight days of Hanukkah for uh, 21 and 20, Grohl and Kirsten get together and every day put out a video of them. It's just the two of them. It's Dave playing drums and singing. And then Kirsten is um, uh, very multi-instrumental. So it's like him doing a whole bunch of other shit. Um, And they only play songs by prominent Jewish artists over like a 60 year gap. And it's it's like a celebration of, of Jewish songwriters and performers and bands um, and all that shit's on, you can see that on, I don't think they've done like an album with that. Cause it's just like live stuff that they record professionally, but, and then put it on Instagram and YouTube, but like, those are super fun. And like to have that level of musical synergy with your producer, that it's almost like they're, they, you, they could be like a member of the band. There's something important about that. Uh, so it's super cool that they have that <clears throat> ability to connect and do that. But the other thing is the Wikipedia discography goes from concrete and gold to medicine at midnight, but they skip something in between, which is really important, which is the St. Cecilia EP, which again, I don't, I've never true actually felt like, Holy shit, kindred spirits, me and Dave Grohl parallel lives. But like moving to Austin, Texas is maybe the most important thing that I've that chapter. There's just so much important things in my life has come out of me making the decision to move to a city where I knew nobody. So I could start a new business and work from other home. than meeting me. Oh, of course. Was, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, Foo Fighters on a tour ended up coming through Austin and stayed at this super boutique, like quirky off the beaten path hotel called the St. Cecilia and just felt a connection with it and ended up recording a five song EP in 2015 in that album. And I got the opportunity to stay there for a weekend, uh, uh, over my, in November of last year. And dude, it's fucking cool. And there's just kind of like a magic about the EP that felt it. The fact that it's not even listed in their discography, I think says something about that. Um, where it doesn't feel, it sounds like Foo Fighters, but doesn't feel like a Foo Fighter album. It feels like intentionally recorded B sides. You know what I mean? Like we don't need a single, we can go do, fun songs and kind of scratch some creative itches that um, we haven't been able to do for a while. And, and they stayed while they stayed in Austin where I live now, they stayed at this hotel, they recorded at the hotel and then they did their episode of Austin city limits um, while they were staying there. So I just, there's something about, Oh, this I just had a super fucking sad moment. I had tickets to go see Foo Fighters, Foo Fighters next month. We're recording their, newest episode of Austin city limits 
here in Austin City. And um, that is obviously not happening. Actually, the Foo Fighters announced today that they have, understandably so, but I'm just saying, like, nothing has come out from the Foo Fighter camp since basically an hour after Taylor died over the weekend. <clears throat> but they have officially said, like, we're we're done for the year. Like, all tour dates are canceled. Like, all public appearances are canceled. Like, um, so obviously the um, Austin City Limits isn't happening. But um, I, I, again, I look back and and count myself fortunate as a fan and all of us like this is we all share this right like it's not something it's not like a gift for me or it only means something to me but like I feel very there's something weird about like I can acknowledge the fact that if someone was saying the same thing to me about like to go off of what you were referencing before like oh my god you too because I don't have that same view of like credibility about you too I'm like okay would they make like fucking sugary I don't, I, I don't like you too. So like if someone said I have this special connection with them and I feel so fortunate that they've been so successful over the years and it's like, yeah, they fucking play to the masses and like, they're going to, you know, they'll make music as long as they want to. And it's a shitty way to view it. But all I'm saying is that like, I do feel that way about Foo Fighters and um, it's, you know, I'm not like, it's, it's not about like, holy shit, I don't get to go see him at Austin city limits. It's just like all of these things are sinking in and kind of real time day after day about like this constant musical presence in my life and inspiration. That's a huge part of it. Like Dave being at this multi-instrumentalist guy inspired me to be a multi-instrumentalist, like do it yourself kind of thing. And like this, this is a, a closing of a huge chapter in American rock history. And in my life personally, um, I don't know. It's, it's profound. There's a sadness to it, but I do believe that there's going to be really amazing shit that that comes from it like we were talking about before with Foo Fighters coming out of the end of Nirvana I just want to say listening to you talk about that EP totally reminds me of uh, me recording my Bush episode because I get the feeling like you could go easily for like four hours on each of these albums oh yeah just like visiting actual (laughs) landmarks that the band was involved with like the the lead singer of Bush is is from Bath England which is like this little suburb outside of outside of uh, London. And I'm like, we're planning a trip to England. And I'm like, Oh, we got to stop in Bath. I want to, this guy owns a guitar shop now. Maybe I'll run into him. Maybe I get a photo and ask him. And it's like, yeah, I just appreciate the passion. Absolutely, man. But let's head into the last. I do enjoy just real quick. If if for those who are still listening after all this time, uh, I do thoroughly enjoy your podcast and would recommend that people check it out. I do want to point out, you did say the name incorrectly when you were saying it at the top of the episode, you left out a key word. Do you want to guess what that key word is? Online. Online, which I'm curious about. It's almost kind of like funny that it's in there. Can you, can you yeah. give us, can you elaborate on the, well, the originally the I was th- two reasons why one, obviously the reference to America online, the okay. foremost way to okay. get on the internet. I like that. And two, originally, originally this started years ago and I started it as a website. So it made a lot more sense for it to be nineties rock online. Oh, didn't know that. And yeah. Until I realized I wasn't getting paid for that website and like keeping <laughs> it up day to day and like writing new articles was like a second job that I, I couldn't afford to have. Yeah. But uh, when podcasting came around very recently, I just thought, you know, I'd, I'd very, very, very recently. Yes. The- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's something like that. Yeah. I'd yeah. already had the, I had already had the logo and the, in the Facebook page and everything. So I'm I was like, going to ask you, I'll just roll with it. Let's if for with those, it. I mean, I'm sure everyone listening is going to go check this out, but like, I, I'm going to give you, I'm going to paint a picture with words right here for those listening. The logo is a conglomerate of 
lightning bolts and guitar picks <laughs> and guitar heads. And I kind of love it. Where did where did you get it? Where did it come from? Uh, well, it's from my last job was a designer I'd been working with. Uh, and I just I, I had been working with her on some beer related projects and it just felt natural. I'm like, hey, you want to take a shot at 90s rock online? It's there's just a lot. There's a lot going on. Like the apostrophe is a guitar pick. And yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, if we're gonna get specific, the fucking bottom yeah. of the nine is a lightning bolt, and the top of the K <laughs> is a fucking guitar head. And it's, There's nothing missing, you know. We just wanted to go all in. You, absolutely. I, I don't want people to miss anything. No, know? no. <laughs> Nailed it. I believe okay. they call it on the nose. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. The, okay. The other thing about my podcast is you can literally track the advancement of podcasting technology because the first episode <laughs> I recorded directly, like into the speaker end of my iPhone. And then each subsequent podcast is with, is with a slightly better microphone. Yes. Um, if so, the just history of time. Well, uh, the history of time. Um, we don't have to dive super far into this, uh, but I'm excited about this next chapter of kind of my musical life that I'm going on, where I have um, essentially the very brief version it would be is uh, got a record contract and will be going out on tour. Um, with this band and the tour starts in May and we're doing 20 shows in this first leg. And then the, the you're band the, is, you're the drummer of Daughtry, right? Of, that, <laughs> that would actually be fucking awesome, dude. But no, I'm the drummer of raw R a, and, um, we're playing 20 shows between May and June. And then we have, uh, yet to be announced dates that are formulating in the Midwest in summer and then uh, a, a pretty big tour that's coming together for its fall, like almost all of fall, which will be East Coast and South. And I am going to do a ton of shit like this, like whether it's from the road, like you and me talking or me connecting with other bands every single night. Like I want to record an episode every single night while I'm out on tour. Like I want to tap into the magic of, of what's happening out there. And I'm really excited to be. You know, are you playing? Are you playing Madison? Can we should we break into Smart Studios? <laughs> I think I think we absolutely throw should. some audio equipment in there. There are Wisconsin dates. I can, I can tell you that. So okay. yeah, but we are playing that the one. I mean, I'm excited about everything that's coming up. It's I I actually am, my brain is still fucking healing from the initial event of this coming together. But we are playing at the Whiskey in L.A. at the end of May, and that's like a that is like a CBGB level. It's a legendary venue. Like it's a fucking, bucket list to go there, much yes, less play there. Absolutely. So it's um I'm excited about it. So yeah. Anyways, um I forgot specifically why I brought that up, but um we gotta I plug our to, we gotta plug our projects. Oh, That's what we're here for. Yeah, I think we were just talking about like the the format of your podcast and whatnot. So I'm excited to be diving into it's I mean, typically my podcast is talking about any wide variety of things, or or this is I'm gonna go through a chapter where it's just like diving into every aspect of music that I can touch, including, and, you know, you know, very thankfully life on the road and what it means and feels like to work on art by yourself and then share it with other artists to collaboratively turn it into an album and then do the fucking work to get it out there and have other people hear it and then go on the road and bring it to life. And I, you know, I want to tell every iteration of that story from lead singers of the bands that we're going out with to the bus drivers and roadies and whatever. So yeah, I'm, um, I'm looking forward to that. So stay tuned. 
the impetus for my podcast is my friends and especially my wife cannot stand me talking about 90s rock as much as I do. So I needed to find an outlet for it. So that's just as beautiful of reason as, as you just stated. I have, but, a, again, uh, I'm biased. I have a, like, and this is it. This is definitely getting back to Foo Fighters, but like, this is a cool fucking time period of music. And yes, there's bad music that came out of this time period. As that applies to literally every single era of music ever. You know, there's one I've, my best friend growing up literally had one of those like thick ass hundred CD binders and it was only dave matthews dave matthews albums dave matthews bo- bootlegs dave oh, matthews oh, i had like, a college live. roommate like that it's oh literally the God. only fucking band he would listen to that to me is super fucking annoying it's like you are rejecting so you are shutting out the opportunity to enjoy so much amazing music including the music that inspired the band that you are so obsessed with um that gets on my nerves but the idea of just like getting i don't i all i'm saying dude is that i fully support your love of this entire decade of music and this, you know, it, it goes beyond that. Right. So like, there are so many bands that have either in the current iterate, the iteration of the band that existed in the nineties, or just the musicians from there have gone on to do great things post nineties. Like a lot of great shit came out of the nineties. So I'm all for I it. A, I got a crazy ass stat for you that I'll, that I'll send you for, for confirmation. Hit me. But, uh, I was looking from 2010 to 2020. I just read this in an article and it broke down the top 10, which I don't have in front of me. But on, on rock radio, the top 10 songs of the 2010s most played were all songs from the 1990s. From 2010 to 2020, they tracked the most played songs. Okay. All 10 of them were from the 90s. That's crazy. Number one was Smells Like Teen Spirit. I know yeah. Man in a Box, Alice. There were three Nirvana songs. Man yeah. in a Box was on there. Pearl Jam, Even Flow was on there. Most of them were coming back to me. But it doesn't surprise me because I bet, like, uh, Imagine Dragons Radioactive, which I'm guessing has got to be close. Yeah. That's pl- played incessantly from 2014 to 2015. Right. But I've never, you never hear it again unless you're playing it streaming. <laughs> but I mean, I turn on the local rock station here. I'm destined to hear smells like teen spirit or lithium. So I think the reality is daily basis. The reality is, is that terms like classic rock and oldies are subjective. That is not specific to a generation. It's not specific to a particular time period. And the reality is, is that the music that we love is becoming the new classic rock. So, which is why I think that I think that that contributes to that stat is that right. Right. Yeah. Like a, um, a modern teenager is not even like a consideration to that radio station. No, fuck no. People dude. still listening to radio are like me and you occasionally. And yeah. We turn it on. Okay. This station's playing Nirvana and Pearl jam. I'm going to, I'll stay with it. Dude, even, even good. the consumption of radio as a media format, I would be fascinated to know the, and I'm not, I'm not including XM like, cause I do, that's a different, they're not beholden to the same things, including censorship and, and the way that advertising works and everything like that. Um, it's not even owned the same way. So I'm not considering that, although you could listen to that through a conventional radio or like something in your car, but just like the amount of people listening to FM radio to get music must be plummeting and plummeting year over year and certainly generation over generation. Um, I just don't see that existing. I don't know, 30 years from now. Like I could see yeah, yeah. radio being more about like news, 
um, NPR programming outside of new, like more AM. I see AM radio is right. More I think talk radio yep, yep, is that talk radio yep. is actually up because yeah. a lot yeah, of yeah, people yeah. now they won't necessarily turn on the radio, yeah. but there's plenty of apps like the Odyssey app or the Intercom yep. app where they'll put on the radio station through their yep. phone in their car. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, if anyone's made it this far, do you want to call in to the podcast? <laughs> you want to be a recurring guest because you are dedicated to our cause. Oh, I'd love that. That'd be great. I think we should put a bow on this episode and, and, and wrap up with the final Foo Fighters uh, album here. Let's dive in. Yeah. So Medicine at Midnight. Um, I fucking love this album. I think it's super cool. I think it is another chapter of them, you know, coming off of Concrete and Gold, which was intentionally and decidedly different from the rest of the Foo Fighter catalog. I think Medicine at Midnight is another chapter of that. Um, but in a different uh, form of expression. And in fact, again, going back to the, I, I can call, it's not even calling a spade a spade. I can just be honest when I don't love something. I don't love Shame, Shame. Shame, Shame is the, is the lead single that came off of this. And I was like, it's kind of like drags or it's like, it's, uh, it's real mellow and slow, but not like easy listening mellow. And um, I don't love it. But the, but then when I got the album, like super love it. And actually I'm now I'm looking at the wiki page for it right now and, and see that Greg Kirsten also produced this. And I did not know that. And I think that speaks more to his uh, credibility and versatility is that if you go and listen to concrete and gold and listen to medicine at midnight, again, both different sounding albums for the Foo Fighters, but those two albums do not sound similar to each other as well. For the non-musicians, like just to understand, like that takes a lot of work, a lot of intentional work to be yourself, but put together a package of your artistic output that sounds different than anything that you've done before. Like it's, it is an achievement. Whether or not it's good is a different thing, but to even achieve the task of getting together with the specific intention of like, let's not sound like anything that we've done before, but still be recognizable as our band is it's tough. And they did it. And I like it. I only have one hot take on this album. <laughs> oh, and it's scorching. I think. <laughs> I've, Fuck probably, you. <laughs> I've listened to, I think I've listened to making a fire several thousand times. Cause I, you love I think it? I've surpassed you. you it's know, the so only, good. The only thing I love maybe more than guitar rock is video games. Yeah. And Me too. so I don't, I can't remember the last time I watched a baseball game all the way through, but I love baseball <laughs> video games. Go figure. Okay. And okay. Uh, last year's MLB, the show, this was a bigger problem back in the old days with these dedicated soundtracks. Mm. Normally they mix up the songs on the soundtrack, Yeah. but without fail, when you fire up MLB 21, making a fire by Foo Fighters is the first song that comes on. Interesting. And okay. I, I like it. You can look up your stats. I've played MLB 21 for hundreds of hours. Nice. And I must, I don't know how many times I've turned the game on, but every time you go back to the main menu screen, making a fire by Foo Fighters plays like That's those awesome. hand, the hand claps are yes. like emblazoned in my head Love and it. just over time. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Like I'd be super disappointed if I went to a live show and they didn't play that. Oh, and, and they'd have, so I've, I've seen them on the tour for that, including two shows in Anchorage, Alaska, which is the first time that they had ever played in Alaska in 26 years. I'm so glad I made the trip for those shows. It was so cool. 
Um, and on that tour and on that album, his daughter Violet is doing background vocals with a group of other really talented background vocalists, which are probably featured the most on making a fire. The like the na na na's in that song. Like it's, I love that man. Like it's, it's, it's so great. And the thing that you and I were talking about before is that some douche nozzle from, uh, the AV club was just like talking about how this is the epitome of, they are all that way. (laughs) But just like, it's the, this is peak dad rock. And I couldn't stop laughing when I was listening to us. And he even specifically cited because it didn't sound like monkey wrench. It's like, if you as a music critic are going out into the world and being like, as long as good music is exactly what I like with what happened before and you never change the format, we're going to be good to go. Fuck you, man. Like that's such a closed minded way to enjoy art. They always want it both ways. As a fan of this type of music, I'm so used to these reviews and it drives me nuts. If it sounds like the previous work, that's perceived as a negative, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, they're just repeating, mm-hmm. they're resting on their laurels. They keep making the same song over and over again. Yeah. And then you do something just a little bit different. And it's like, this doesn't sound like the Foo Fighters at all. Yeah, dude, it's fucking bullshit. Um, but I can also, this isn't, this is just context. It's not, I don't accept it because of this, but like that gives them something to say. Right. Like, I suppose that they could just be genuine and say, like, I, I loved this album and here's why. But it's more compelling to have something controversial to say or to take a shit on something. But I'm just like, fuck you, man. Like, I, whatever. I'm <laughs> this is, I'm not this is another that. podcast, but I just I'm curious about the purpose behind music criticism, specifically album reviews and the way that they're still done like they were done in 1995. Like, I understand the point of them back then because you needed to pay eighteen dollars. And you maybe didn't have all that cash to throw around. You re- relied on critics to tell you, does this just have one good song on it? Yeah, you know, what, yeah. what's the value of it? Now, almost anyone on earth with access to a smartphone can listen to any song at any time. Yep. I don't need Joe Magoo to tell me that it sounds weird and he doesn't like it. Like I can listen to it and make it my own determination. So that whole industry is. I don't Agreed. Know. But would, would you say that there is no one? Is there no industry or field or genre of anything right now that you actually still look to a trusted source to steer you correct in? Because I have that. Food. I guess I, I still use it for movies because now it's not a money commitment. It's a time commitment. Like if this is three hours long, I don't I, I guess I could watch it for 15 minutes, but I'd rather just know going in. Sure. So I I, I think the value that it either still does or at least still could provide aside from the terrible example that we just gave with the AV club is that if you have certain sources that you like, you can go to the, like, yes, you, I suppose you could just absorb all of the music that comes out on your own, but it's still nice to have like a, a trusted resource to steer you in a certain direction. There's this phenomenal food critic in Los Angeles named Jonathan gold that puts out a list of the hundred best restaurants in LA every year. And every time I've gone out there, every night I'm going to some place on that restaurant uh, on the list. And it's like, to, to be super clear, this is not like has nothing to do with price point or fanciness or celebrity endorsement or whatever. I've literally gone to Michelin star rated restaurants and then Thai places in a rundown strip mall where half of the businesses are closed down. And that dude has never let me down one fucking time. And yeah, I suppose I could just go explore myself or just rely on Yelp reviews or something. But like, it is nice to have a trusted source for something that I like, I love, 
I love good food. I love tourism being associated with food. So I like relying on someone whose opinion I trust. That being said, if his, if instead of putting out his best 100 list, he was putting out the 100 restaurants that I hope catch on fire and the proprietors die in the process, you know, like I'm not going to fucking pay attention to it. And I feel like that's what the AV club does a lot. So fuck those people. And they're, they're incentivized a lot to, you know, get clicks and because that's how they get advertising revenue and that whole model. But it really sucks because it would be different if it was like, let's talk about the new Justin Bieber single, as opposed to let's talk about like this incredibly prolific, arguably very legit rock band. And what I'm, I'm obviously I'm biased for Foo Fighters, but like pick your battles, I guess. Like if you're going to shit on something, make it something that's easy i don't know it doesn't have to be easy right. to shit on but like the and case I'd, to shit on it should be pretty strong. i'd like to i'd like to know more i think what the reviewer should be more upfront about what their musical tastes are that's the other thing too it's like yes yeah, you and yeah. i would not be the right people to review like a country music a modern sure. country music album i don't There's want to be people that enjoy that but we're not going to write a review i don't want to vegan to review a steakhouse right. yeah right. i think that's yeah, a su- exactly yeah i think that's a super valid um uh, uh point to make and yeah i don't know Interesting. Um, I know that that brings us to the end of the Foo Fighters. Oh, well, there is one thing to note. So it's so sad. Literally the day after Taylor died, a new album came out that is Foo Fighters adjacent, which is called Dream Widow. And it is the music that is from the movie that just came out called Studio 666. <clears throat> and the, the movie Studio 666 is a campy horror movie that is based on the experience that the Foo Fighters had in the house that they rented to record medicine at midnight. And um, it's worth listening to because it is, even though it's like, it's not bad music is it's, it is hyperbolically heavy. It's about, it's the, the, the beginning of the movie is this like crazy speed metal band in the nineties that rents this house and get demonically possessed and all murder each other. And then the lead singer kills himself um, and then the Foo Fighters end up renting that house to record in 20 years later. And the same thing happens. <clears throat> so the Foo Fighters create an album as Dream Widow. And it's a huge departure from, I mean, imagine listening to Coldplay putting out a rap album. Like, I know that that sounds bad, but like they put in a lot of effort to make a decidedly different thing. All of that is to say, I truly believe that there's going to be a mourning period. I think Dave's going to be out of the spotlight for a long time. and I think. That I actually think he's gonna come back with maybe some of the best shit he's ever done in his entire life. And maybe it's not him as the front man. You know, he did drums for them, Crooked Vultures and Queens of the Stone Age. And he's just too much of a fucking he is music. Like he is yeah, he music personified. Music. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's going to I think there's a bright chapter ahead after this pretty dark period. And again, my by absolutely thoughts and condolences go out to him. I mean, he's a father, Taylor was a father and a husband and, you know, a best friend and a, a, a lifelong bandmate. It's super fucking tragic to see him go. Um, and I think that he will be revered by the rock community for as long as rock music is remembered as one of the greatest performers to ever hit the stage. And certainly, uh, you know, an integral part of one of the biggest rock bands to ever grace the stage. So I, you know, cheers to, Taylor Hawkins, you're the fucking man. And I hope, even though I'm an atheist, I hope I'm wrong. And I hope there's an awesome afterlife and you're just rocking the shit out up there right now. So can we make a quick quick departure? So 
this whole format has been very much so the <laughs> 90s online rock pop, 90s rock online podcast. I'd like to take five minutes to go a little bit to mind meld format and just can we depart from music for one topic and then we'll wrap it up? Can you, can, given current events, can you guess what I want to talk about? The slap? I do want to talk about the slap. I'm actually like super, like as soon as it happened, I was like, I would love to talk to Rob about this. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this. You and I are both in social media. So we see both personally and then like professionally. So like we see, we see how events are portrayed and form different iterations and become memed and the way that people talk about it and then the way people argue about it. And then the way that people dig their fucking toes in about like who was right and what's I wrong. I honestly can't and, remember a, a more recent event that like created more takes that I've seen on my social media feeds. Like not yeah. even the war in Ukraine had like the, just the level of I, every podcast I listen to nearly every friend or acquaintance, yeah. everyone's got a take and they're all coming. Some are like coming at it from what, what does this mean for stand-up comedians? Some are looking at it from a race perspective. Yep. Some yep. people are looking at it, uh, you know, from a health perspective, like every sports, everything's involved. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I've thought about this a lot. Well, first, let's just, let's go initial reaction. What was the very first thing that you thought and felt when you saw the video for the first time? What's nuts is I was watching the, I was watching the Academy Awards and then I turned in it real, off. In, so, in real time. Yeah. And okay. somehow, but somehow I missed it. I, I turned it off and went on. I think I played, I played Xbox for the rest of the night, but I did watch like the first hour and a half. Yeah. And then amazingly, I stayed off social media. So like any American, <laughs> the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is check my phone. And then I became, I had to put on my inspector Clouseau hat and like try to I saw something about Will Smith hitting someone. Yeah. So I didn't go through like a lot of the discussion is what did you think when you first saw it? Like it had yeah. already been determined. This is a real thing that had happened. So I'm approaching it from that perspective. And real quick on that note, I don't like anyone who can view that and be like, oh my God, this is so staged. You're detached from human interaction. Like if you can't see the genuine. Did you, did you see it live? No, but I saw it. I saw it uh, literally seconds after it happened because in Japan, Right. It was being okay. aired before the edit. So the video that I saw came out with the like, keep my wife's name that's out my, your fucking mouth. Like it's, but that's my point is that yeah. part was edited out for American audiences. Yeah. So I feel like if you're watching it live in America, I can totally see that because you didn't hear Will Smith say that from my understanding. But even if you see his face, there's some, I don't know. I, I'm not saying I'm like yeah. Captain Empath. But there was some, in fact, I thought him the, the look on his face and what he was screaming from his seat was way more impactful than getting up and smacking one of the world's biggest comedians in context for me is everything here. I think it's fucking absurd. I'm frankly really fucking tired of the knuckle dragging response of like, God damn right. I would have done the same thing. Say something about my wife and find out what happens. Okay. And what happens is that you get arrested for fucking assault. And I think it's fucking bullshit that like, I understand wanting to do that. Let's all be honest for a second. There's things that we want to do all the time because of how it is associated with our emotions and we don't do it. And that's what is the glue that holds fucking society together. Right? Like we're not yeah. like, Oh my God, you cut me off. I'm going to rip your fucking face off. Like that it's, it is unacceptable. Even in the context of let's say Chris Rock was intimately familiar with Jada Pinkett Smith's, uh, alopecia and other medical right. history, which I don't think he was, but again, I don't think it matters. 
What's the incredible fucking, is it's the context, dude. 80% of my social media followers are now have gone from epidemiologists to foreign <laughs> affairs experts to alopecia experts like overnight. Yeah. And I don't mean to be insensitive, but from what I've read about it, okay, it makes your hair fall out. We're not talking about like childhood leukemia here. Yes. yes. You should be able to take a joke. Agreed. But that, so without striking someone. I completely agree. And then two yeah. notes on that. One is that I've so I've seen this both ways. One is that I've seen people be like, fuck J. So I think there's this apparently huge amount of people that are very upset about the fact that uh Will and Jada have some sort of polyamorous poorly defined relationship that became public knowledge and there was some sort of infidelity or maybe not infidelity but regardless jada fucked some dude will found out about it Will was upset about it somehow this became part of public discourse and people pick sides fine whatever but then when you bring it up to this all of a sudden everyone is taking all of that context and inserting it into the reaction to a one sentence joke about in my mind that that was a joke about GI Jane, not about fuck you, alopecia, balding bitch. Like if for those of us our age that remember when GI Jane came out and it's Demi Moore, who it was like a shocking that Demi Moore, who is a absolute sex symbol, shaved her head to embody this badass role for GI Jane. She was not mocked for that. That was literally like a holy shit. No one wants to fuck with Demi Moore. Like, look how fucking badass she is in this role. So then to say to Jada Pinkett Smith, who has also been in multiple other badass roles, including the matrix, say like, Hey, see you in GI Jane two there. I take no part of that to be like, fuck you autoimmune yeah. deficient bitch. Like that's, I, I, I think it's so absurd. And then in the context of this happens every year, Ricky Gervais, like all these people in this scenario, get up there and like this is a this is a well-established trope of of how this event chris rock is like one of the not the original but like the master of the roast like growing up watching the mtv music awards when they were even you know mtv showed music and it was even bigger than it is now (laughs) like that was his entire his entire role was just roasting whoever it was yeah it's almost like an honor to get roasted by chris rock of course, so I, I'm 100 on Chris Rock's side, and it's just, yeah. I, there's obviously a lot going on with the Smith family. Oh, but but so the thing I was saying before about these uh, these alopecia experts is that I've I've seen people who are clearly taking the vitriol from like you fucked like fuck polyamory, and I can't believe you fucked over your man with that whole scenario, and then bring it into this and say she's talked about having alopecia, but. I've done my research and alopecia means that you lose your eyebrows as well. And she has her eyebrows. So she's fucking lying about this as well. And they're like, I just, the whole, it's just crazy to me how invested people get into the event itself. And then making up all of like trying to connect all these dots to justify it or whatever. But at the end of the day, it was like a, a guy assaulted another guy on live TV and humiliated him in the con as a response to and in the context of something that for decades has been a platform for levity and just if like the if comedians come to these award shows and they have fun with the people in the audience if you aren't aware of that that's on you if you don't want to be subject to that don't sit in the front fucking row or don't go to the award show but to think that like and again the, i think the context of the joke itself 
is very like I'll, I I I I'm gonna. He said like I'll see you in GI Jane two. That's it. If you literally take that as it's time to fucking you know commit battery on live TV, then none of us are on the same page in terms of like what humanity is because way fucking worse things are are said and implied and done and not done every single day. And if we're actually like have a huge percentage of us condoning that, like, yeah, that's my woman. And I motherfuckers are going to get punched in the face. If they say some shit like, dude, no, but no, this is not how society works. If you or I had done that, we would have been removed from the auditorium. No but shit. Then they, if not then tackled they gave him and a, fucked up. Yeah. They yes. gave him an award. Like, I mean, Twenty minutes later. Well, to, then, so to be fair, that was predetermined. Obviously, you know that's voted on ahead of time. I do think right. that he should have been removed from the auditorium, and he, I'm not saying he shouldn't have gotten the award because yeah, that people is- have won awards not being in the building. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But the 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 Academy handled it very very poorly. I think I'm not even like a big Chris Rock fan. Holy shit, dude! What a professional! Like he literally. I mean, he took that fucking punch. His recovery from it his ability to just go in like cameras rolling. I'm going to present this. Like I, I yeah. was actually thoroughly impressed by how well he handled a fucking stupid, awful. I, I felt scenario. the worst for Questlove, who, who won best documentary after that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But, so, like for whatever reason that I found even stranger than how the Academy handled it was Will Smith. Apparently like if I do that, if this situation happens to me. I'm like, I'm calling it a night. I'm calling it a night. I'm getting together with like my publicist and like figuring this out. He went to the Vanity Fair party with his whole family and is like on camera dancing with his trophy to get jiggy with it. And everyone who <laughs> was probably whispering behind his back and talking about how terrible this is are like yeah. dancing with him on the dance floor. It was just a really bad look overall for like Hollywood and all the negative perceptions people have about how far up their own asses they are. I, you know, they'll publicly poo-poo this and like the second Smith's throwing a banger at his crib, like they're all going to be there. I, I completely agree. And then, so this, I, even right now, so today is, it's, you know, end of day Tuesday and this video is still up. This has aged so poorly on his Instagram. This is from before he went to the award show. I'm going to show you the video on the camera, but the caption is me and Jada Pinkett Smith got all dressed up to choose chaos and you got to live with it. And here is the here's the video. So it's like them walking up to camera, but then like being like, yeah, like, oh, look how fucking crazy we are. We're like bouncing all over the place. Like you can't fucking contain our energy or whatever. Funny and faces. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then you to go to. But then now I'm looking at his profile right now. And yeah, uh, he has a like a Instagram note. Or, a, yeah. you know, like an iPhone note published here. And it says, violence in all of its forms is poisonous and destructive. My behavior at last night's Academy Awards was unacceptable and inexcusable. Jokes at my expense are part of the job. But a joke about Jada's medical condition was too much for me to bear. And I reacted emotionally. Again, I don't think it's fair to automatically assume that. I mean, a, a movie star is sitting in the front row of the Academy Awards and has a shaved head. And there are cinematic implications to truly badass women having shaved his heads in film over the years. He said, see in GIJ and two, I, I do not think that that was a fuck you. You got alopecia eat shit. I, I don't think that was a thing. So I would like to publicly, did, did, go ahead. I would like to publicly apologize to you, Chris. 
I was out of line and I was wrong. I'm embarrassed and my actions were not indicative of the man I want to be. There is no place for violence in a world of love and kindness. I would also like to apologize to the Academy, the producers of the show, all the attendees and everyone watching around the world. I would like to apologize to the Williams family and my King Richard family. I deeply regret that my behavior has stained what has been an otherwise gorgeous journey for all of us. I am a work in progress. Sincerely, Will. What do you make of him laughing at the joke? There's tons of footage of this. He laughs at it initially. I mean, I get it. Even if, even if in his mind, he, at the time it initially triggered, it was like, holy shit, that's a joke about her alopecia or whatever. Like all these people know that they're on camera. This whole thing is a fucking press event. Yes. It's a celebration of the arts and whatever, but like these people, like it's a very, everything is very calculated in terms of like the way people behave and present themselves, which kind of makes his behavior all the more insane at that point. So I, I don't, it's possible that he legitimately thought it was funny in the moment or was putting on a happy face of like, I know I'm literally sitting in the front row and I'm up for best actor. And I, this isn't the fucking time or place to fucking wild out. And then, but simultaneously right next to him, you can see Jada um, being less than thrilled. She didn't even look pissed. She just kind of looked like this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. And then it pans back to Chris and he kind of, you can, he can tell he's like reading the audience. He goes, Hey, that was a nice joke. And he start he, I don't know who was next on his list, but he starts good because right before then he was making fun of Javier Bardem and uh, Penelope Cruz. And he starts going to the next person that he was going to make fun of. And then that's when Will Smith walks on stage and Chris is still thinking like, Oh, like, Oh, here we go. Like he's just truly thinks that it's kidding around. It's going to be funny. And then he fucking hits him so hard, dude. Um, Anyways, to answer your question, I I think it was either a pretty human reaction from him or him being calculated from like a PR standpoint. But regardless, all that shit went out the fucking window. To me, it doesn't change too much. I, I think it that his rage and his reaction came from his interpretation of how the joke landed with his wife, regardless of whether or not he yeah, it it doesn't look good that he's laughing at it 10 seconds before he gets up and assaults a guy, but um at the end of the day, it, it all comes from him defending his wife and him feeling the need to defend his wife in that way. And I just think it's super fucking misguided and stupid and potential career suicide. So, And if it was, if it was almost anyone other than Will Smith, it would be slightly less shocking. But he is, he is like, I'm trying, like if Russell Crowe did that, I'd be like, okay. Like, but, that, but like, I can see Russell Crowe doing that. Like, but he swap wants out beat, some other factors. He wants beat a dude in a hotel down with a with the phone. That's true. That's true. But but, but that that wasn't on live fucking TV. Yeah, I know. It wasn't the epicenter yeah. of like his entire. No, I'm industry. saying the like, fact yeah. that it is will yeah. is makes it even yeah. more shocking. But I, I have thought about like swap out the character. <laughs> well, okay, so swap out the characters in terms of who is the person making the joke and who's the person getting offended. Which reminded me, I saw this tweet that was like. For all of you that think it's funny what just happened, go back and replay this scenario in your mind. And instead of Will Smith, think of airplanes. And instead of Chris Rock, think about the Twin Towers. Is it funny now? It's like, obviously, that's a, it's a joke. But um, I, that if it, was a, if it was Russell Crowe hitting Chris Rock, like if it was a white guy hitting a black guy, or if it was a man hitting a woman, like same, same context. All the, all the other things are the same. You offended my spouse who has an autoimmune disease. Um, I don't know. I, I, 
Do you think that this would be a much bigger deal if you swapped out genders and races? I, I would say it's, it's already. So I go to a gym that has 10 TVs lined up, you know, along where all the treadmills are yep. with all different channels yep. and eight of the 10 had this on, like it went, I can't imagine it being bigger, but yes, of course, I think if, if there were different races or a man and a woman, it would be even bigger. Like, yeah. I, 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 I don't know how we'd have the bandwidth for it, but yeah, it would be bigger. Do you, th- do you think there's a scenario in which, so let's keep Will Smith as a character, but then it's like, it's um, Amy Schumer instead of Chris Rock. And he gets up and he fucking smacks Amy Schumer. Do you think, do you think that there is a scenario swap out Chris Rock's character for some other combination of race, sexual orientation and gender? Do you think that there is a scenario there, some combination of the deliverer of the joke? And then he goes up and hits them where he does get removed from the theater or there is a much more harsh reaction to. Oh my God. I I can't even imagine like him striking Amy Schumer. Obviously, I have no inside ins like I'm not Nostradamus, but I could see like at that point, like Denzel Washington or Bradley Cooper, I guess the people who are calming Will Smith yeah. down, like running up on stage and doing something, restraining him, grabbing him. That's what I would think would happen. Like, doesn't don't you have like an instinct? Like if you saw something like that happen, like you're like, I need to intervene. And I yes. think the fact that it was yeah. two men. And like Will Smith comes charging back off the stage and everyone's shocked. They're not yeah. up there. Yeah. Or, or if it was like someone a lot older, let's say even, I don't know who Morgan Freeman or something. Yeah. I yes, don't know. For I, sure. For sure. Yeah. That's yeah good I could see like people getting on stage. The fact that it was like two peers, I guess would be a good way to see it. Uh, maybe like actually overall help. What was a terrible situation? Yes. yes. I think yeah. I, uh, this is not the same, but I, I it conjures up thoughts of Kanye getting on stage and ruining that award moment where, you know, he takes that. It was like, I think it was album of the year. It was just like, right. I'm a, let me, I'm going to say this. Like, you know, let me, you know, I think he said Beyonce deserves the award. He gets fucking shit on for that super hard. Hey, the president Barack Obama yes. weighed in on that. Yeah. And yeah. then with, with this incident, someone brought it up and I saw it today at the white house press corps. And it was treated like a joke. Like, of course, Joe Biden's not going to comment on this. Yes. Yeah. But Barack Obama commented on Kanye West cutting off Taylor Swift. Yeah. It, but it was it wasn't just the cutting off. It was the like physically coming up on stage and the like kind of right. the destructing the format and the respect for the event and everything. And I th- I've yes, I'm sure there's a handful of people out there that were like, yeah, I'm fucking glad that Jesus stood up and, resp- you know, spoke truth to like what should have actually won fucking album of the year. But I think in general, the overwhelming majority of people agreed that like, this is someone acting irrationally and, you know, doing something that tarnished, if not ruined the night, don't fucking do this. As opposed to this, where all, there's all this, this very misplaced sense of like, nobility and gender roles and like the obligation of a husband to his wife. And is this chivalry or is this a fucking Neanderthal move? And I've just seen so many people defending it in the, under the guise of like, this was an honorable thing to do. And it's like, what are you fucking talking about, dude? Like remove the celebrity from it. It's assault between it's a guy assaulting someone else for making a one sentence joke. It's unacceptable. It's a fucking crime. Get stop romanticizing this. Jesus fucking Christ. Like it's fucking absurd. And, and then of course, sprinkled on top of that was 
Um, I have screenshots of, of how many times I've seen. I fucking hate how many people do not understand the definition of what the First Amendment is. And they're all like, hey, Chris Rock, First Amendment, First Amendment. And, and even, even specifically saying First Amendment has no limits, which it by definition has like decades of precedence that does limit it. Um, but uh, so many fucking stupid people out there. And it's so interesting that something very core, like one man, not out of self-defense or anything like that, and, and, and for what it's worth, a much bigger man, went up and struck man number two. And then all of a sudden, these people come in and are like, I'm going to justify this and stand behind Will Smith and all the jokes about like, oh, this is what, you know, this is French Prince of Bel-Air. Like, this is exactly what happened on the playground in Philly. And it's like, no, dude, like this is, imagine, put your dad on the stage right there. Imagine that your fucking dad just got pimp slapped super fucking hard by a very physically fit, large domineering man on live TV for doing his job. How do you feel about it now? Is it, is it romantic now? Is it fucking chivalrous now? Is that what you would do for your wife? Like, it's so it's just disappointing you to see just how reminded me how much I hate social media because <laughs> I've seen that people steal jokes now, speaking of comedians and yeah. play it off like they came up with it. Yeah. I saw the same Prince of Bel Air joke like a hundred times today. It's fucking like, stupid, dude. Well, anyways, this has been two white guys telling you what should happen in society. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. That's to the tell name you. of our new pod. It's going to be so. Oh, it's, it's actually the new CNN uh, streaming app is going to be picking this up and it's going to be uh, globally syndicated. And I think it's going to have an impact on, on foreign policy, too. Can we throw so. the word online in there just I to think- confuse everyone? <laughs> and make it CNN, more to say? CNN plus plus streaming premium online cloud net meta web 3.0. Series X. Series X. Rob, this has been a treat. We're literally just, uh, we could actually wrap this up right at the two hour. It's currently at one hour, 59 minutes and 17 seconds. And I think that we could both do our respective outros and just put a delicious chef's kiss bow on this. So thank you for listening to the Mind Meld Podcast with Dave Perry. Please uh, subscribe on all major social platforms and streaming sites. And thank you so much to Rob for not only being a part of this, for but allowing me to be a part of this and sharing this experience with me. And make sure everyone go listen to the 90s Rock Online podcast. Rob, take it away. You got 15 seconds. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another great episode of the 90s Rock Online podcast. Special thanks to my guest, Raw drummer and foremost Foo Fighters fan, <laughs> Dave Perry. Talk too much for too long. Don't give up, it's too strong.